then. Mm-hmm. You're in a desert walking along the sand when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise <laughs> crawling towards you and you reach down and you flip the tortoise on its back. Wait, what's a tortoise? It's like a turtle. <laughs> it's uh, its belly's baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Uh-huh. Not without your help, but you're not helping them. Why aren't I helping? I don't know, you're not helping them. <laughs> I want to help. So your iris seems to be growing a lot. Well, it's, it's, it's not because I'm a super like, secret robot. Or, Wait, I am calm. I'm calm. Uh, how's your mother? How's your mother? A starship floating in desolate space. Once manned by an eight-person crew, there is now but two souls left. They continue to man the vessel as they lose track of the days as well their minds. That is until they come across a distress beacon. They approach it and find a container drifting in the cold embrace of the infinite black. Inside is a plethora of video games and movies from the late 20th century. Together, they make a pact. They will comb through each and every one of these and send a beacon. Okay, what? (sighs) All right, no, seriously. Uh, This is an awful plan. This isn't gonna work, guys. I don't even know what the hell you're thinking this is gonna accomplish. You're just gonna get out there and both die in space, and it'll be all for nothing. I don't understand what you're trying to do. This is Super 8-Bit. Hello, and welcome to the Super 8-Bit Podcast. You're back with Dave. And Ben. How are you coping with the uh, alien uh, invasion that we're still Oh, I tell you what, this monster's really getting on my goat now, you know what I mean? I just want to leave, but I can't because he he just he just he's taken up space on the ship, let's be honest, Dave. He's a, he's a passenger we didn't pay for. Well, on the on the holodeck, what um what simulations are you currently going through just to occupy your time? I'm currently going for the desert simulation, so it's hot all the time, but I thought I'd change it up today and put rain on for no reason. So it's quite nice. It's uh, it's hitting the window pane very well, but uh, I might switch back to desert next week. See how I feel. You know, so you have like any simulation in the world, and you're just doing tubes. <laughs> that's the weather. I'm a simple man with simple tastes <laughs> and simple needs. Well, what what holiday are you doing, Mister? Uh, oh, you could do anything in the world. Uh, I'm reliving Tron Legacy. Oh God, you're just we're living in a nightmare. I know. <laughs> Is Daft Punk there? No, I couldn't get a rights. <laughs> the holodeck rights. <laughs> What's even the Roddy point then, Dave? Come on. Uh, Come on. I'm just gonna go play a little big planet instead. <laughs> That's a blast from the past, Roddy X. Let's just jump straight into the uh question zone. Question Rooneys. Let's Got do it. Good questions for me. I'll let you start this week. Yep, I have a question for you, Dave. You ready? Yep. Here we go. So number one of the week. Who is your least favourite character in any movie? So this one was quite tough to narrow down. Mm-hmm. A lot of bad characters in film are bad for a reason. They push the story along, and I still like them because you know they're bad characters. Yeah. So I was trying. I was trying my hardest and hardest to find a character <laughs> I genuinely didn't like. Yeah. 
and it's got to be Kevin McAllister's uncle in Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin McAllister's uncle. In... Oh, Dave, yeah. for, for those of us who aren't as uh, familiar uh, of the works of uh, Christopher Columbus, would you mind uh, explaining what the uncle's role is in the movie? I've completely forgotten. So I think he has like one major line where he says, look what you did, you little jerk, to <laughs> Kevin McAllister when he spills Pepsi. <laughs> any movie <laughs> it was so aggressive it put michael gambon to shame <laughs> was it michael gambon playing him no oh right michael gambon played dumbledore and shouted at harry Potter. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. why'd you put your name in the goblet of fire we're, yeah. we're all familiar hey harry why didn't you put hey, in the goblet? Harry, why did you put uh, your name quick in question for you mate you know the, you know the goblet <laughs> what's going on there well, yeah, yeah, i found your name in it that was pretty weird <laughs> Uh, sure. Did you put your name in it or, uh, or what? <laughs> Almost like we didn't think things through when we put a circle. <laughs> like maybe we should have invented a better system. For maybe this. we're all knowing wizards, but we just, ah, oh, we didn't think of that one, did we? Oh, well. Yeah, didn't see how I'm coming. Uh, <laughs> it's almost as bad as the Chamber of Secrets logic. So how would you make Kevin McCall's uncle a bit nicer? What could he have said in that situation when... Kevin McAllister spilled Pepsi. Uh, remind me again, what was the one line he, he had? Uh, look what you did, you little jerk. I would have been... No, it doesn't sound aggressive when I'm <laughs> saying it, because I'm a real nice person. Uh, you are uh, such a swell guy, Dave, but it just sounds like an angel saying it on my end. But he, he's just now, so I think when they give to Paris in one of the movies as well, he's like, oh, we, we're in Paris they and go we're worried about... like, this. leave him at home alone again? Yeah. Like, they think they'd learned from the first time? You would think they would learn. What is that mum? Is that the worst mum in the world or? Worst family in the world, to be honest. Yeah, well, she wouldn't say so, that's for sure. Anyway, to make that a bit better, I'd uh, take the jerk off, probably. He's, he sounds like a mean guy. Look what you did, you little. Look what you did, my little cherub. <laughs> <laughs> my little mashed potato. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure your uncle crushes one of the other kids against the wall. Really? Christ. <laughs> it's no wonder the McAllister family is so um effed up, you know, like just an un it's probably the uncle, if it's all the, un the, the uncle. The uncle knew if Kevin was home, he was like, Yeah, fuck he's it. He's a puppet of the whole family, a mastermind. <laughs> he's the palpatine of uh, the story, if you will. He says oh, he locked <laughs> Kevin in the attic because of that Pepsi instant. And it's like, oh no, uh, yeah. No, like, oh, have you seen Kevin? Yeah, he's in the back, don't worry, just go go. Yep. Yeah, locked him in, locked him in the attic. Yeah. Like, oh, he doesn't seem to be on the plane in the second one. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, just go. He's, he put him in first class, don't we? <laughs> put him up ahead. Don't worry. Oh, thanks, Uncle uh, Bob. You're the greatest. I know. <laughs> Do you reckon the uncle was part of a wet bandit? <laughs> the wet bandits, the two bad guys. Yeah. I didn't know they were called the wet bandits. Yeah. In the second one, they cover sticky bandits. That's the best name ever. Yeah, the uncle, <laughs> well, he was, um, you know, he was Joe Pesci, wasn't he? He was Joe Pesci. <laughs> Joe, it's Joe he Pesci played, in the He movie, famously right? played six roles in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he was playing the role of, um, you know, that weird guy Kevin thinks is trying to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, what's the deal with that? Like, he thinks he's, like, a pedophile, but... Well, he just looks creepy, and I think he, they think he's, like, a grave digger or something. Why are there two alternative cuts of Home Alone? Have you ever noticed that? I didn't know there was two alternative cuts. Yeah, in one of... I swear that guy has different roles in both the cuts. I swear it. Like, there's, like, huh. a made-for-TV cut. I've seen both. But, anyway, I'm just getting off topic now. <laughs> but I can't believe that's your uh, least favourite character in any movie. Who'd you say yours? <laughs> oh, put me on the spot here. I don't know, like, um, I really hate Miss Trunchbuller and Matilda. 
probably yeah. her. But she, she pushes the story along. She's not like a bad. <laughs> she serves a purpose. Do you know what I mean? It's fine if she serves a purpose, but I still don't like her. But like, I don't know. I guess I misinterpreted the question, but I thought it's like a character that you just didn't like. It didn't serve any purpose. Oh right, no. I was like just his uncle it. was just way overboard, and like I, I guess it was more like a question like, who do you love to hate? You know, like um, Al Pacino and Scarface or something. <laughs> yeah okay i would say maybe dolores umbridge oh you know what I'll, i agree with you i've got to say though being a huge book nerd the book dolores is a lot worse than the movie one but oh really yeah she, I, I, I don't think i i think i read up to goblet of fire and it, you got to that one line did you put your name in the goblet of fire that's where you stopped yeah, i was like <laughs> well it can't improve on that well this seems like a karma collected dumbledore i'm gonna stop reading <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna stop now <laughs> No, she is like horrible when she's like making Harry like uh, right on the. He, she's essentially making him draw a knife into his own hand, like yeah. marking him. It's really like, isn't that like an Ofsted equivalent in Hogwarts? Like, I don't understand health and safety requirements. Well, like, of magic. You're just letting fucking students go into the forest every year. You know, the third floor corridor. Oh, it's scary. Don't go in there. We're not gonna protect you or anything. Just don't go in. Oh, and by the way, there's a giant basket that roams the halls, but they can't. You know, just have a safe school. Like, just safe. Help. Basic health and safety. Dumbledore. We want to my question now. <laughs> yeah, go on. Hit me. So, who is your favorite director, and what would you say is their best work? Ooh, that's a very tricky one. Mm. Okay, so my favourite director uh, is Edgar Wright, I think. How many... I like a lot of directors, but I find their actual personalities quite insufferable. I love Stanley Kubrick, but I think he's... You know, it's like, you know how he made Tom Cruise do that one take and eyes wide shut 127 times where he just walked through a door. <laughs> it's like that type of mentality. <laughs> like, but I think I've seen like behind the scenes on Edgar Wright DVDs and he seems like a nice guy. Have him on Instagram as well. And he always posts like cool little movie tidbits and I'm always liking him. And uh, he seems that and he really supports the Edgar Wright sort of community, like Shaun the Dead and all that. So yeah, um, he's my favorite director just in terms of personality. I really really like the way he directs as well but um if we're talking about like the best director and your favorite I, I suppose they're two completely different things like the best director one of my favorite edgar wright moments is uh he told a story where he was he was filming Shaun of the dead one of his first like feature films mm. and uh he was it was behind the scenes of his film and one of his zombies said to him not realizing he was the director straight to video this one i think <laughs> <laughs> and because that. he was like a new director he was like oh yeah 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 whatever <laughs> i heard um that um in Shaun of the dead because it was like his first feature movie and everyone was like underestimating and making fun of him that the first shot he did in the movie was the most technical one which is yeah. the shot at the start of the movie where he's recording sean walking up the street and down the street in one take oh, yeah. and then they do it twice in a row don't they so they yeah. did the hardest one first just to prove his you know balls as a director. there's a lot of cameos in that film like who's a cameo in that one there's peter sophie which is obviously sam Pegg. Yeah. Uh, there's Bill Nye. There's that guy from um, Black Books. He plays the annoying guy. Black Books, Dylan Moore. Dylan Moore. Yeah. Dylan Moynihan, I think, maybe. Similar. Uh, yeah. Then there's Martin Short. I thought you were going to say name? Martin um, Freeman. Then. That's who I mean, I think. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Sherlock guy, the Hobbit guy. Martin yeah, Freeman, Martin yeah. Freeman. Sorry, who's Martin Short? I don't, I don't uh, know. Martin Freeman. <laughs> Matt Lucas. Who's Matt Lucas again? Uh, 
the woman from Spaced, he's with Sam Pegg. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, There's a lot there. of oh, There's also Reese Shearsmith as well from uh, League of Gentlemen. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I know League of Gentlemen's really good. I, I need to catch up on it. it is but, really um, good, yeah. It's funny because um, there's a lot of references to Spaced in Short of the Dead, like the whole yeah. dogs can't look up thing that's just taken directly from Spaced. I think it's only six episodes Spaced, but it's apparently yeah. really good. Like I have seen it. Uh, what did you think? It was years ago. It was all right. Yeah, Peter which is in that as well. And now I've got to answer what my uh, favorite Edgar Wright film is, which is uh, an even harder question. I've got to say, and I'm going to say, um, oof, they're all really good. If you haven't seen an Edgar Wright film, do yourself a favor and watch one. <laughs> okay. All right, okay, I'm just going to say one. It's Hot Fuzz, isn't it? It's the best. Yeah, Edgar I was going to say you were either going to go for an edgy answer, but I was going to call you. Well, out I on. was almost going to go for Scott Pilgrim to be honest, because I really like that film. Mm. I don't. I wouldn't say that was an edgy one. I'd say yeah, G choices were World's End or I wouldn't Baby have Driver. gone for World's End, but I do respect it as a movie. Like I think the characters in the, you know, Gary King, he's the best Edgar Wright character he's written. I think. Hmm. Do you have any rebuttals to that? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's like he's got a lot of like a dark history. But yeah, I think I that's what makes defines. him more complex and what I like about him. I don't know. I like Nicholas I Angel from Hot Fuzz, obviously. Yeah, he's very two-dimensional. Yeah, but, that, but that's the point, isn't it? It's like supposed yeah, yeah. to be like that. But um, but yeah, I really... um, Yeah, Scott Pilgrim is another... That's definitely my second. I think just the style he was trying to go for, and the fact that he captured yeah. it so well. Uh, and you know, the Scott Pilgrim series wasn't even finished when that film came out, so it's really impressive he was able to do what he did. Anyway, so your next question, Dave, you ready? Here we go. Yeah. So, uh, do 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 do. What is your favorite ending in a game, Dave? So this one was a tough one. I've gone for a few, but I'll gloss over the runners up. Mm-hmm. So I've gone for Red Dead Redemption. That is an amazing ending. I agree. Oh, by the way, spoilers obviously yeah. for this section. So, spoiler alert: you go through the whole game. It's a very long game. Trying to get your family back, you eventually get them back, but you get double crossed by the law. The damn and law. And you basically get gunned down you can't survive this encounter but you can try and gun as many FBI agents down as possible what was your first experience playing that ending what were you thinking i was trying to get through the game it's so long and it took me a while to get through mm. uh but my first experience i feel like someone may have spoiled it for me unfortunately so i, I also gonna... had it spoiled for me i'll talk about it after you though i thought he wasn't gonna i knew he wasn't gonna survive unfortunately it was cool you walk out of his barn doors knowing what you're gonna face you just get it's like robocop you just get massacred like but then there's a hidden ending at the end the hidden ending is great yeah actually i should have asked if you meant the hidden ending instead so you um you basically take the role of his son burying his mum who is beside his father's grave so you know you take the reins of him as he becomes an adult uh playing as a son is different because he's kind of an asshole yeah he's so he's annoying. Really annoying. I voice. hate his voice. It's so bad. And he, he, he's kind of an asshole to the horse. As you, when you want to go faster, he's like, get it. I fucking hate yeah. you, horse. <laughs> but anyway, you eventually find the guy who... This is a purely optional thing. You don't have to do this. Mm. You wouldn't even know it existed, I think, unless you... It's just a question mark on the map, like a side exactly, quest. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you get, the, you get to the guy who kind of double-crossed you, and you find him, and he's hunting ducks. And you have your final shootout. Yeah. Uh, and as you, if you, presuming you succeed, Red Dead Redemption just splashes across the screen. Red Dead Redemption. Finale. 
it's so so satisfying. It's really. So, did you um kill the whole family or just him on the? Uh, oh, I think I just ending? killed just him. Just him, yeah. I did it the first time. I just killed him, but the second time I killed his um his wife, his uh, well, brother, and him. <laughs> just were we for... all in the house? No, because you know, throughout the quest, like that's how you find them. You have to ask his oh. brother, and then you ask his wife, and then she tells you he's by the lake. So you uh, you can just kill all that. of them to get the ultimate revenge. <laughs> but uh it's a bit well, grim but yeah when i first played that ending uh, i was really confused towards the end of the game because you um you defeat um whatever his name is uh the leader of your old gang Dutch. Dutch, that's it yeah thank you and uh then the game sort of gets a bit weird because you just sort of live at your family's farm for the last part yeah. of the game and i kept i was in high school at the time and i went in one day and i was like does anything actually happen at the end of red dead redemption because i'm just living on the farm doing odd jobs at the moment <laughs> and then my mate was like yeah uh just keep playing for a bit i was like okay so and then obviously I think I saw a Facebook post which was like, oh, I can't believe you died at the end of Red Dead. I like, yeah, so. I think like one of my friends at high school like gave me like an inkling that that's yeah. what was going to happen and I was like, oh. Well, your, sound, your friend sounded a bit better than that. Man. Yeah, I mean, posting it just fell out on Facebook. Like, there's nothing worse than that, is there? So, um, runners up were Halo 3. It's very oh, satisfying. Oh, ending I love. That's fantastic. It's a very satisfying Warthog chase that ends most Halo games, but this one is particularly satisfying. Yeah, when I learned it was in most Halo games, I liked it less, but um, this one is well, really I don't good. Well, like know. It's like just something you have it's, to do. You got that me- I remember the, when I was uh, just uh, 12 playing that for the first time, and that music kicked in, and you just... Da, 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 and you're just like on the warthog <laughs> i felt so Flipping. cool um and then i also went for twilight princess because i thought that was a really epic ending um just trying to remember the ending where you fight ganondorf final... in the ring well yeah when you're chasing him on the field on horseback and then there's that horde of soldiers as you're fighting Ganon 101 gandorf 101 that music as you're fighting ganon is there anything more epic than that ganondorf i should say but then, as well, afterwards, Midna turns into a true form, and yeah. you, Ganon is, uh, Gandalf is sealed into mirror. The, um, what's that thing in Super, Superman? <laughs> He's sealed into I, the, <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, yeah. the realm of... Oh, I forgot. I the don't remember. The, realm or yeah, he sealed into the Shadow Realm anyway. Shit, <laughs> Send him to the Shadow Realm. <laughs> Yeah, those are my favourites. Yeah, yeah, good choices, good choices. Uh, I didn't expect a few of those. I don't, I don't even have an answer for you here. I've just, <laughs> I'm going to say Red Dead Redemption for now because uh, well, it would be bad if I said Sonic 2 or something like that, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right. So which video game character did you pretend to be the most when playing with friends at school? This is a bit of a cheaty answer, and uh, I'm sorry, but um, did you ever play the movie tie-in game lord of the rings the two towers uh, i didn't but i know it's a very big yeah. it's people love it and uh, all my friends at school loved it we all love lord of the rings we all played that game non-stop so we did um play a game in school where we'd pretend to be in the game of lord of the rings which is also a movie we'd be aragorn legolas and gimli guess what character i was always stuck with dave um uh, i'm guessing you would be frodo i was sam always I had an Inuit hat at the time, sort of style. It's flat at the top and it's got ears that go down past your ears. Do you know that type of hat? Sort of an Arctic yeah. hat. I had yeah. that. And um, because of that hat alone, I always played Gimli. And without fail, it would uh, piss me off every single time. And, you know, one week I'd be like, oh, man, love to be Aragorn one of these days. And my mates would be like, nah, you Gimli. <laughs> <laughs> really uh, gut-wrenched looking back. But... Well, at least you're 
Galadriel's hair. <laughs> yeah, well, my hair wasn't very long back then. It was like a buzz cut because I was like um, six at the time. But uh, that was a reference you didn't get. What was the so reference? Please explain the reference. You'll have to. If you know, you know. If you're in the know, you're in the know. You know what I mean? <laughs> Did you uh, play any video game characters at school? Um, I used to. We used to play a lot of Digimon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, Digimon games. I feel uh, like I've blocked all of Digimon out of my head because we used to as well. <laughs> We used to play a lot of Sonic. Yeah, yeah, we did as well. I think our idea was play SBO. SBO. Dave, you know what? I used to be SBO as well when we'd play Sonic in the playground. I don't know why. I think that says something about us. Because he's, like, but... he's like ninja and he's like cool he's and fast. Cool. And he'd be like, yeah, I want to be SBO, man. Because Sonic Heroes had just come up, out when we were growing up. Like, I want to be Charmy the Bee. Yeah. Charmy. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so we got our first uh, fan submitted question today. Are Ooh, excited? exciting. Who's the fan? This is from Jess Carignan. Oh. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He's always been a big supporter of ourselves. Thank you, Jess. And it's good to speak to you again. Thanks for the question. I'm pretty sure he runs the Ben Loveland uh, fan club as well. The official fan club. Who's Ben Loveland? I, d- I don't know who that is. Uh... <laughs> He doesn't know about Galadriel's hair, but so. Oh, thank God, I was worried for a second there. <laughs> so his question is, what's an example of a time where you've revisited something, a game or a movie, you were nostalgic about and you've had fond memories of, only to find out it really sucked? Great, great question. Do you have an answer for us, Dave? I was going to go for Digimon World. Mm-hmm. That game, I, I rented it all the time. I was desperate for it. I actually recently rebought it for the PS1. Ooh. It's not amazing. The fighting kind of sucks. There's no control over fighting. You tell your Digimon to either fight or run away, I'm pretty sure. Would you say you were blinded for your love for Digimon? I, I do love Digimon still. And I, I still probably will play that game again. It's, it's like we were just discussing. I, I I feel like I've blocked a part of Digimon out of my head because there was a TV show, there were games, there was like a card game, and I just I don't remember any of it anymore. I remember it all. It. I spent a summer... <laughs> in college just re-watching the whole first series purely so i could get to the second series and then both i was burnt out by the time I got to <laughs> i've rewatched all of the first pokemon series before oh. and that was nostalgic even though it's not good i it's tried to rewatch Yu-Gi-Oh because uh, Yu-Gi-Oh is what took over um digimon i think for me uh that was like more edgy and dark but i'm um, re-watching the series uh, the voice acting really great on you doesn't it bloody hell the japanese digimon is so much better it's just four kids like slam dunk yeah four it. kids would ruin so much stuff but uh, i mean they didn't make Yu-Gi-Oh very good either let's be honest but i mean they did have the amazing intro to Yu-Gi-Oh. um but it's time to you said digimon world uh this ties into something we were talking about last week you might have remembered dave when i was talking about my cool spot fan fiction oh, yeah. <laughs> um i used to love this game when i was a kid called spot goes to hollywood on the sega mega drive uh, i used to play it religiously and then uh i replayed it when i was about 12 ish and i uh, still loved it i used to listen to um you know that feeder song um got a brand new car yeah. yeah i used to listen to that song and do the minecart levels on spot oh my i God. think i was like the the coolest we're guy building ever. like some history I, <laughs> I don't know why i always reveal my dark history <laughs> but anyway what i was gonna say is uh i replayed it i think it was um maybe three months ago uh obviously the ship's in quarantine so i don't have a lot to do because of the alien but uh uh, I replayed it, and uh, oh my god, Dave, it is one of the worst games I've ever played. Have you ever played Sonic 3D before? 
I've played Sonic 3D, Flicky's the, uh, Yeah, the perspective in that game is pretty hard to get used to. It's awful. Yeah. I, and imagine that, but with worse controls and you can't run, and that oh. spot goes to Hollywood. And I think it'd be a lot better with, you know, Buck Rogers by Feeder playing in the background. <laughs> I should have uh, put it on for all time. Yeah. <laughs> but I got really far to the game. I got to the last world. And you know what? I got to this one part where the game glitched on me and I was like, I'm done. I can't be bothered anymore. This is one of the worst games <laughs> I've ever played in my life. And I'm I'm not afraid to say that I was blinded by some sort of nostalgia back then. <laughs> well, if you're listening, Pepsi, 7-Up, seven seven Sprite, 7-Up. <laughs> You've clearly lost you, a fan. You let a little boy down and you should be disappointed. <laughs> you let a little boy down and feed it if you're listening. Where were you? Where was Buck Rogers when I Where needed the most? Where was just a day. It was just a day as Feeder would the say. Day, the day music died and Feeder I think I was really into Feeder at the time because I was playing Gran Turismo 3 and they had a lot of their songs in there. I think everyone who was growing up in the 2000s liked Feeder. He's got a brand new car. And where did Feeder go? Where are they now? Like, <laughs> What do you mean? Where are they now? They live in our hearts and minds, Dave, every day. They live in the cartridge for Spotify. <laughs> Okay, welcome back. Uh, so last week I recommended to Ben Blade Runner, one of my favourite films of all time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was first released in 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, based on the original sci-fi novel Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep by mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick. Great. Uh, ben, do you have any idea why you've not seen this one before? Is, is... <laughs> I already told you before. There's, I think, at least five releases of this film. I just didn't know which one to watch. And uh, you kind of get in the mood where you're like, maybe I'll just watch all of them. And then people build up the film. And then it's like, oh, I don't know what to do now. You know what I mean? That's why I haven't one. That's how I feel whenever I watch anything anime related. Is there is like redone versions or yeah, exactly. like versions. Exactly. You're like, where do I start? I once tried to get into Iron Maiden and I was like, what album do I start with? There's, tw- <laughs> there's 25. <laughs> I mean, it's not like an ongoing narrative, so I think you would have been fine. Yeah, would you say if I watched the first one, like the original cut, I would have liked it as so much? I've, pe- I've only seen the final cut, so I had to do some research for this. Mm. But looking back... I'm glad we watched the final cut. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's the Ridley Scott approved one, isn't it? So it seems like it's the, from what I've done research-wise, it seems like it's the only one where he had full creative control on the project. Because mm. Hollywood is no good. <laughs> it was a different time in the 80s. They didn't respect directors. But I'm glad they did um, 
it was Warner Brothers, wasn't it, who was controlling it? And I'm glad they eventually did release the fan cut. What's weird is they made a director's cut as well, which Ridley Scott wasn't involved in. Yeah, so he was a bit... He didn't have much control in, which is very strange. Yeah. He still butchered it. Do you know the differences between the versions? Yeah, uh, we'll get into that later. Though. I've got a oh, whole cracking. segment plan for it. Uh, oh, go ahead then. I won't stop you. So, uh, just for reference, this is obviously going to be spoiler-ridden, uh, but, but I'd spoilery. recommend watching the final cut before oh. you listen to this. Mm. It's not available on English or US Netflix or Amazon Prime as of this moment, unfortunately. You should be able to find it somewhere. Wink, I wink. think I had to buy it on Amazon and I watched it, but it's only £3.50 to rent, so yeah, I just rented it. Yeah. I'm sure you did, just that. I did that. I am a good law-abiding citizen, Dave. <laughs> in this world, where the setting is Los Angeles in 2019. <laughs> Weird. <So> last year. <laughs> last year. Yeah. Akira's in 2019 as well. Yeah. Big, Which is dub- big, uh, doubly strange. Cyberpunk year. It was the year of cyberpunk. Why didn't we celebrate this month? Who knew they were one year off? <laughs> one year off and everything goes wrong. Alien invasions, you know, your friend turns into a mutant, uh, replicants roaming the street. <laughs> it's just crazy. In this um, setting of Los Angeles, the world has replicants, which are essentially androids, manufactured people. They tend to work in slave labour, technically, off-planet. They are referred to as skin jobs as well. There's a whole unit uh, in the police force called Blade Runners, a term not even used in the book once, completely really? created uh, for this That's story. fascinating that uh, they didn't even use that in the book. Yeah, I can't remember what they were called in the book, but yeah, but... Everything else seems to be pretty close. Uh, the Tyrell Corporation isn't called the Tyrell Corporation either. So Ridley Scott took a few liberties with the story then. Is it a short story? Because I've read a few... It's very short. So my experience with the book, I actually read it in one night. Wow. When I was looking after a person who was very drunk. Um, <laughs> did I they recommend it or was it just... They did not. Know? They were vomiting... And I had to keep an eye on him. You should read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what? What are you saying? You're not making any sense. (laughs) I happened to see a book in their bookshelf in that room and I just read it in one sitting. And it was a weird, tired read, but it was very good. I've read a few Philip K. Dick stories and they are really short. They're like three or four pages. It is actually the only one I've read. But I've had a weird experience, obviously, given that I read first, which does seem to be... rare occurrence Mm, it's not often that happens is it but But um, i'd like to say there are a lot of bits in the book and the film that i prefer they each have their own merits mm -hmm. there's a lot each could improve on Mm. but we'll get we'll get into that so we're first greeted by a city city line view of uh, los angeles with fire you know now that you've said los angeles it's really strange because it didn't click that that was los angeles when i was watching it it looks so different yeah well it's like a future dystopia version it's full of multicultural different cultures it's so different it's just like scarred like the whole place it's got a it's giant just... pyramid in the middle you exactly know? <laughs> the tyrell building we're greeted by a cityscape as we pan in and there's this vangelis soundtrack which is amazing by the way mm. mm-hmm. i agree the very very, very good. dystopian cyberpunk defining soundtrack mm. mm-hmm. so we see these flames roaring into the sky and these flying runners uh flying around um, is that what the cars are called runners i believe they're called runners Oh no, they're called spinners, sorry. Spinners, well, spinners, runners, you know. Yeah. So, so there's spinners, <laughs> they're flying through the air, and we're greeted by this weird uh, dystopian kind of food court area, like an outside, outdoor food court. 
and mm-hmm. our main character Deckard gets pulled in, gets arrested, just mm-hmm. so he's forced into another job. He's out of work at the moment. He's not a blade runner anymore. Mm-hmm. Who typically they hunt down. They are bounty hunters that hunt down replicants. The term specifically is retiring them. They don't execute them because they're not people. Just to... as it says in the uh, opening crawl, it does. Yeah. Gives quite a lot of information on the opening crawl, which is... Uh, it's a bit of a Star Wars, isn't it, Blade Runner, you know? Very Star Wars, very 80s. Like, it's not something that's done nowadays. The bombastic music, crawl coming down. Yeah. Do you like, like opening text information, or do you prefer it oh, all shown through? really depends what movie it is. Yeah. Have you ever watched, a, like, uh, I think it's Dune, that has, like, a lot of... Op- no, it's Battlefield Earth, what am I talking about, oh, yeah. where they've got loads of text and you take... You just can't get it in in time, and it's just too much. And talking about Star Wars again, uh, Phantom Menace, I can't remember for the life of me what that text is talking about, Trade Federation or something, but... Yeah, it's just about trade groups and trade federations. But the Blade... The Blade Runner text is quite interesting because you're like, oh, replicants, Blade Runners, yeah. what's this all about? Like, bit of intrigue there. So it set the tone pretty right. well, I feel. Yeah, it's short and sweet. Yeah. And then you greeted to that, um, there's like a shot at the start where there's like an eye flashing at you, obviously meant to be yeah. the iris, but it's so just strange. It's just hooks you right in, doesn't it? Yeah, so we see a character being tested by the Voigtkamp test. So mm-hmm. this is a test that is used to psychologically determine whether a person is a replicant or not based on their moral choices. Yeah, for example, the, the turtle being pushed on its back and its belly's burning in the sun. That's a mm-hmm. test just to see if the person would panic and, you know, have moral, you know, it's like a paradox. So... So it's all about the morals in that test. Because uh, yeah. I was trying to like read into like you know how it worked. Yeah, it's something to do with the iris as well. Like yeah, so they used a lot of stock footage in the film of eyes just to show that I think they look at their pupils to dilate or their irises to grow or shrink. Something like that. I don't know how much science that's based on. But... <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, it's very sciencey. I shrink and grow, right? <laughs> so it's just to determine a reaction speed, I believe, just to yeah. yeah. So it's believed that this test was actually based on a device created by Alan Turing, um, oh, which uh, was a test to see if a computer could convince a human that it was another human. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. It was only found after he died, uh, I believe. I'm not sure on the details of that, but yeah. It's pretty interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. No, I would have never thought in a million years that was based on a reality. Exactly, <laughs> It it's weird pretty. this film because uh, a lot of it is weirdly based in like a lot of morals, philosophy, and reality we see today. But exactly. um, do you know what I mean? Like the Voiv contest, like it is something you could imagine happening. Like it's not so unrealistic. Exactly. Yeah. Which is what makes the film so great. Uh, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, it's like a, a smarter, more realistic Terminator. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's Terminator without. I wouldn't say without the action. There's less action in this film, but yeah. I I'd say the action's not the forefront of the film you know um with terminator it's very much like oh scary baddie here he's coming terminator is framed more as a horror movie and in this way this is a horror movie like for the replicants but not for the actual humans exactly. like you know which is what to make it so great another thing i want to point out as we're talking about the skyline as we come in um it, like you mentioned that large pyramid building it's mm. this dominating pyramid building that dominates Gigantic. the los angeles skyline it's owned by the Tyrell Corporation, who created all these replicants in the first place. They have mm-hmm. the brains behind all of this technology. 
Mm. But it called akin to like the, the Egyptian pyramids that were built by slaves. There's a lot of Egyptian sort of references in this movie. I was noticing, um, and that is one of them. And actual Tyrell, the guy, the actual guy Tyrell, his office is um, very Egyptian. Like it looks like it's from a completely different movie. The first time you go in there, yeah, it's filled with like rich architecture, rich art. Um, mm. It contrasts a lot with the poor. Uh, the, kind of poverty scenes you see we 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 may be talking about this a bit more later but the amalgamation of cultures this movie has is one of the most fascinating things exactly but i think that's the case of this is supposed to be a country it's a post-nuclear warfare everyone's come together to make a city and it just makes it more fascinating because like the place where you first see Deckard it's like a like an Asian sort of uh, food place and he goes there multiple times in the movie and it's just it gives the detective vibe a much more interesting twist and it's just a fascinating world because well, of the it. thing is he doesn't go there multiple times he goes to different places there's that many oh my goodness I didn't even realise that <laughs> there's a lot of uh, Asian geisha advertisements and things like that. So it just shows. Uh, well, it's uh, such a capitalist society in the movie. Obviously, the famous advertisements plastered all over the place, and it uh, just shows the influence. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. It creates such an. I don't know who created the world. If it was Ridley Scott or what have you, but like amazing job on the art design. Yeah, absolutely, it, it feels real. Especially when you get into the um, what are the cars called again? Um, spinners. Spinners. Yeah, when you get into one of the cars, it feels like a car. You know, it's flying, and it's got like it, it's got a lot of influence from Alien as well. I feel the computers yeah. are like sort of look like they're ripped from Alien. It's fascinating. So yeah, this was released three years after Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah, Blade Runner and Alien. You're a bit of a Ridley Scott fanatic, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I, w- I, w- I would say he's probably one of my favorite directors. Which one did you see first? I saw Alien first. And uh, do you think it was the influence from Alien that made you like this movie a bit more then? Um, I don't. I, I can't really say. I feel like that's yeah, that's something I really can't really answer because I don't have an alternative mm. to compare it to. Do you just think I uh, see them in your mind as like two completely different, separate movies? Yeah, like when I think about it, they are very, very similar. Um, mm-hmm. I think the main reason I like this is because I read the book first. To be honest, I, I'm sure oh, I, I would didn't have know liked you the read film. the book first. Oh wow! Ben, I, I thought you would have read the book after you saw uh, the movie. Ben, I just did a whole segment talking about how I read the book first, and I forgot, <laughs> and I was just referencing that fact. <laughs> I thought you watched the uh, movie and then you had this drunken night and then you watched the book, read the book. <laughs> watched the book. Ben, are All you right. okay? It's not that bad a mistake, jeez. <laughs> so yeah, I've read the book first, which it's very different, but it follows the same course. It's like different characters, essentially. Mm. So one of my favourite things about this film is Harrison Ford's acting and the character he plays. You know, you uh, everyone's used to him playing Indiana Jones or Han Solo, a charismatic, uh, heroic character. But in Blade Runner, he plays a person who's frankly quite bad at his job. <laughs> He's not good at his job. I think he ultimately retires two people himself in the film. Yeah, he's not he's not a very good Blade Runner. You can kind of see why he left. Like. Which I think, given that the introduction was him being forced back into his job, that doesn't really... We have no experience of him being a good Blade Runner. What's funny about him in this movie is, what does he do? Retired two replicants, but he's saved by two replicants, so... He is, yeah. He's saved by two, and he retires two, and he's supposed to... At first, he's supposed to kill four... And then, obviously, five, we learn. And then five. And let's be honest, like, he wouldn't have killed them all without 
the replicant's health. Exactly. Like, he was very lucky. Well, no, but what I'm saying is the two that he did kill, that was purely mm. him of his own actions. The other two died of other means, which we'll get to. It's funny because the first half of the movie is all a detective case just for one replicant. And um, once you once he kills her, I don't remember what her name is, but um, it sort of just cartwheels from there. And then, you know, every other second, you know. Yeah. But the first half of the movie is the most like a noir movie. He's like, just being thrown into a world he doesn't want to be in anymore. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's just a detective after he guns her down in cold blood. Which is one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, so he, the first skin job he finds is someone who is working as a an exotic entertainer, we'll say, with a re- robotic <laughs> snake. I'll let you imagine what that may be. I found this weird. He he pretends to be kind of like nerdy guy. a nerdy in, uh, reporter kind he, of. He's type like figure. people are spying on you through holes in the world. Yeah, it's very <laughs> it's very jarring. <laughs> It's really weird. The first time you watch that, you're like, what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> and then he gets... He's not really good because he doesn't really pull the character off and he gets beat, he gets punched in the face and nearly choked out by this uh, replicant. He goes on a um, chase after that. Yeah, and he goes on a chase sequence, which is very cool. It's great chasing. I love the, um, like, when the street's saying, walk, exactly. don't walk. It's so great. Tell you what, tell you what, I wasn't even really on board of the movie until you know the end of the scene where he shoots her and she falls through the glass yeah. and it's uh, sort of slow motion. Such a great shot and scene. It's 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 fantastic, isn't it? And you know, as soon as he shot her, I was like, it escalated that movie from a good movie to a great movie. So I think that's for us as the audience, like a sort of turning point in how you view yeah. Deckard's character, because at first you'll, like you say, you think it's like Harrison Ford as the hero, like he's out to get the replicants, those yeah. evil, money grubbing replicants. But as soon as that happens, you view Deckard in a different light. It almost seems like he's sort of killed this woman in cold blood, you know, on the sidewalk. It's it's crazy. And then that brings up the ongoing theme, like, you know, how it's just the replicants on the run, really. And they don't really, it's just... Brings up some moral questions. And in that scene, you see Harrison Ford himself or Deckard looking at her corpse. He's not looking great, is he? He's probably weighing up what exactly he has done or... Yeah, That's where the clock exactly. kind of starts counting down because the, the the focus of the movie and the book, I'd say, are the moral, what what makes us human and what if you create life, uh, is it fair that it be treated less than us? Exactly, and a big philosophical question by the movie is like, when does something actually become real? And you know, when something gets emotions, is that is that real? And that's why they put these sort of like four year lifespans on the replicants. So yeah, uh, for reference as well, all the replicants have a four year lifespan. The antagonist, the four replicants, uh, the antagonists of the film, Leon, Zora, Pris, and Roy Batty. Their yeah. main goal is to purely survive, and Roy in particular wants to find a way to expand his lifespan turn off 
turn off the kill switch essentially exactly yeah he wants to get this to continue he wants to live essentially which yeah. is uh, something he feels entitled to exactly and you know throughout the movie you start to feel his cause to be honest like it's it's strange calling them like antagonists when they're uh yeah I suppose it's really the the law and the police force that are the real bad guys in this movie. How do you feel about that? Well, it's it's typical noir, isn't it? There's always crooked cops. Mm, a sort of a grey line yeah. in the sort of morals of the movie, yeah. It's got great noir influence, this movie. The rooms, you know, smoky, uh, sort of shadows everywhere. It's fantastic. And speaking yeah. of noir, the original, the original theatre release actually had a voiceover by Harrison Ford. Oh, no way. What was that like? Uh, it was awful because uh, he, he <laughs> deliberately phoned it in. I didn't do a good narration because he didn't feel like it needed to be in the film. Have you listened to the voice lines? What are they like? I've listened to it. It's not good. I'll be playing one in a, in a uh, near the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that bad, eh? But it's not good. He's phoning it in. He didn't expect them to actually use it and they did what why did they use it is there any reason given i'm guessing he just could thought the audience was dumb the audience are idiots yeah exactly uh, yeah it's not good <laughs> are there any other uh, differences from the original yes so there is a big one like i said but we'll we'll save that for the end oh okay exciting <laughs> yeah but throughout the film it was mostly just cuts of violence and things mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. so as the film goes on Deckard questions his morals and preconceptions of replicants as he interacts with Rachel who is another replicant he it, she kind of acts as the love interest of the film she's a new design of replicant that has memories implanted in it as well as the other replicants they're all part of the same Nexus 6 line of Replicant, the latest in Replicant technology. So the film kind of teeters on the question of ethics in creation of AI robot. It's a question that's been considered by many works of fiction throughout you know, history. You know, iRobot, things like that. I wouldn't have gone forever, but yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I meant the story, the uh, the Free Laws of Robotics, not the actual Will Smith 2007 <laughs> You know, Wild Wild West. Uh, the, uh, just the classics of Android <laughs> literature, really. <laughs> I think it really resonates today because we are on the cusp of AI technology and, you know, machine learning. We have self-driving cars, search engines that adapt to the users. Such an interesting movie for this day and age, isn't it? Because um, it's, uh, a lot of aspects of the movie did come true, you know exactly. what I mean? We even have AI sex dolls, which are yeah, in the works, uh, which... which, you know, the film has <laughs> as well, technically, with replicants. <laughs> so when do you think we'll be seeing replicants that don't suffer from the uncanny valley effect and, you know, are like in this film? Mm, I mean, hoping for next year, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think when we'd actually yeah. get to that level. Um, single for a while then you know you need to uh, it's been a long time for me to <laughs> i'm stuck on the ship like what do you expect you can't <laughs> use like the space equivalent of tinder can you i'm trying to think like uh what level our robotics are up to today like what's the most robin modern robot you've seen wasn't there a robot an ai that because it was released onto the internet became racist due to its interaction really yeah. <laughs> he, I, I can't remember who it was but there was a company that went creating this smart sophisticated ai and they released it to Mm. the public to like interact with and over like (laughs) a a very short span of time like a day it became extremely racist due to interaction oh no that just shows you how horrible we are as human beings so uh, i'd like to go into the the differences between the book and the film now Uh, this is really interesting my favorite thing about the book that i wish was in the film is deckard's fascination with animals hmm 
throughout the entire book, every time he sees an animal, he just stops what he's doing and he just can't help but like stare at it. He's asking how much it is, if it's genuine, if it's a real animal because of its nuclear fallout. Mm. He owns an electric sheep, hence the title of the book. Hence the title. Uh, he uh, Animals are seen as a status symbol in this world. Like, all his neighbours have an animal on the rooftop of their apartment block. And they're tending mm-hmm. theirs, and he's tending his, and he feels embarrassed because, like, he's got such a shit animal. He's got this electric sheep. It's not real. <laughs> Just, all he does is eat grass. But he, his goal is to get another animal. But once he get, once he gets his bounty for the first skin job, he retires. He's like, he he buys a goat mm. for him and his wife, which I'll point out he has a wife in the, in the book. Again, very strange because of the love interest in the movie. Well, she's still in the book as well. <laughs> what? Blow my mind. So yeah, uh, he has this fascination with animals and replicates animals. The only reason he's doing his jobs is to get another animal to accompany this sheep I mentioned. This is a whole angle they should have put in the movie. Where was this? It's so good. I really was hoping it was in going to be in the film. <laughs> I, it, it would have been fine being in the film, I think. He didn't have yeah. to have a wife to buy it for, like a... I mean, he does dream of a unicorn in the movie, but I bet that's unrelated. That's a whole thing we're going to get into. That's a whole other can of worms, I bet. In the book, it's a bit ambiguous whether Rachel is a replicant or not, but mm. in the film, it we're point blank it's told. explicitly yeah, stated. which I think is odd, because I feel like the film was aiming towards whether Deckard is a replicant or not. I mean, that's a big thing in the film. Like you, Halfway through, you're like, is Deckard a replicant? And it never gives you an answer. Exactly. You just gotta, gotta... It's very ambiguous, which I like. Yeah, I love the ambiguity in films. I like it, how they don't hold your hand. Like, with the narration, I'd find that annoying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Am I a replicant or yeah. not? <laughs> like... I don't know. I guess I'll question myself some more. <laughs> I'll ask myself some questions in the voice booth. <laughs> Avoid conf tests myself later. <laughs> don't get cocky, kid. <laughs> that was one That's in a million. <laughs> Whereas in the book, Rachel is the main focus of is she is she, is she not a replicant, mm. and that's his his struggle with his you know materialistic view of his type of person. Are they worthy mm-hmm. of you know equal rights, human wise or not? Do you think um, Philip K. Dick would have approved of the movie? Uh, I did read a little bit how he was talking to Ridley Scott about the movie when he yeah. was creating it, but he never saw the full thing because he died yeah, before he saw extracts. And I think he said something like, that's exactly it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I remember, remember. I, can't, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe he did approve of what he did see or what was written mm. um, before mm. the film. The previews. That's probably with the narration though, so. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the narration? Where's the narration I was uh, intended to be in the adaptation? <laughs> so in, in the book, ultimately, what I recall, most of the replicants become sadistic and don't really give us a chance to give them any empathy. They are by design, which is kind of strange because it does take away from a point. So are they sadistic in the way like they want to end their own lives or how so? They're sadistic in that they're all like corrupted and like dismantling bugs and animals uh, or they just have no empathy towards the human characters. They just all slowly become the enemy, which I think takes away from it. Yeah, because like the great part of the movie is how they're not the enemy, yeah. really. So it does kind of teeter in the book eventually to is Deckard a replicant or not? Mm. But the main focus at the beginning, I believe, is Rachel. Yeah. Deckard does sleep with Rachel in the film, and he, in the book, sorry, and he proclaims his love for her despite having a wife. So it's like an affair in the book, but in the film, it's not. Yeah, but then after that scene, it's quickly shown as him just utilising it as a device to 
kind of clear his sexual urges and not as any genuine love mm. interest. It was like a role play thing. It was just him in the moment. Because another great thing about Blade Runner the movie is how he sort of comes to empathize with the replicants. But I'm assuming the book doesn't really go down. Yeah, that in path. the book, straight after that's a perfect scene. The way it would have been perfect to you mm. know explore that. But straight after, mm-hmm. Rachel reveals that she's a replicant and that she's coerced many bounty hunters into sex just to stop them from out in there or giving any, any information out. Okay. And it's like, oh, okay. And then Deckard yeah. threatens to kill her, so he's lost empathy and, like, <laughs> it's just, like, a whole mess. Of... He's, he's not a great character well, like, in both the characters, like, that just ruined the whole point of that scene where it could have been. Because even though, you know, you don't love Deckard in the movie, like, he's he's quite angry, yeah. he's, he fails at his job. I mean, in the movie, he kind of almost forces he Rachel does, to yeah, sleep that's with a her. very. It's really strange to watch. Like... It's so contrasting, but I, I, would, I picture it as the same thing. He's treating it like an object because she mm, is a mm. well we don't know in the movie he says he he starts out by using pronouns like it and yeah. stuff like that to refer to replicants but throughout the movie you can see how he you know he changes yeah. you know so he mean? does treat her as like an object at first but then you know slowly comes around mm. it, it feels realistic that's how it would be it feels more realistic to me or maybe like you could say it was realistic in the book because like people never change their ways it really depends on your outlook yeah i just feel thing. like if a book was making a point that it was lost in that scene i feel like ridley spot scott certainly did expand upon that point Absolutely. definitely and towards the end of the uh movie he, he just gives up everything for a replicant you know so he truly yeah. learns to empathize with them yeah so we we obviously don't know where they went after that scene unless we watch the sequel <laughs> uh, in the in the book so in that scene we kind of lose any sympathy for kind of rachel because she's just a machine at that point she she states her purpose you're not really a character anymore you just you're designed for this it's it, mm-hmm. yeah the whole emotion range of the replicants is gone that that's where it kind of breaks <laughs> and you just see them as machines doing these sadistic mechanical calculated thing rather than acting a free will which, mm-hmm. you know, is supposed to be the point that they are very close to us, but they're not. Exactly. Yeah, but again, that scene is kind of explored in the film, like you mentioned, with Deckard forcing himself on Rachel, but then, like, it kind of evolves into something yeah. more. It, it, it can be easy to, like, maybe misconstrue that scene as... Uh, a reflection of Deckard's character like yeah. maybe he is just uh, an aggressive jerk but it's like you say like maybe he does just view her as an object it's kind of a, a, a very random kind of C plot in the film as well that is mm. not explored in the film which I'm very glad but it's very strange basically a, a C plot in the book sorry yeah it's very strange there's mm. so in the in the book there's this TV entertainer who is a, a replicant he's like a saturday night tv host type character even though replicants are illegal well in the book they were fine but i believe it was replicants that went a wall that were not fine i believe okay can't recall that i may be wrong (laughs) so there was this saturday night kind of entertainer type replicant character that everyone watched they either watched that Mm -hmm. or they were into this religion (laughs) there's a whole religion in this book (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was very odd. It's described from what I can recall. You hold onto these rod, two metal rods, and you place your head in like a VR kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Everyone shares this one experience of this one character. I think it's called Wilbur Mercer, if I top my head. It's like a. Was it like a bit of a cult in the book? Kind of. It's very strange. Like it was very hard to read because it was very hard to picture. <laughs> 
I'm amazed how many plots it's, he fit into. It was so, such a, such a B, C plot that it wasn't even like it's not even a B plot. It's a C plot. Is it just mentioned like it's in the mentioned background? randomly throughout the book and then like? Oh, by the way, there's a religion with VR. <laughs> it's like these metal rods you hold onto in a VR set, and you basically are watching this character struggling to climb up a hill as this rain mm. of stones is hitting him, and you feel the pain that he is feeling. <laughs> but you feel connected to others who are also experiencing the same thing. And that's the point yeah. that you'll feel in this one experience with everyone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was pretty strange. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't in yeah, the no, uh, film. Very str- uh, so some things, you're glad they didn't put Yeah, in that was a very odd get really <laughs> added to it. I get the point of people wanting to feel a connection with other people, but that was... I guess it was just world building in the book. Yeah, it was world building, but it's such a short book, it was like, what? (laughs) And then I think, (laughs) if I recall, at the end of it, this Saturday Night host was against this religion thing, but he is a replicant, Mm. so I don't know whether that was because it was something he couldn't experience, or... Sounds like the replicant lore is um, really expanded in the book because uh, in the movie, after all the replicants are almost dead, you sort of start to question, like, is that going to be the end of the replicants now or will there be more, except for Rachel, obviously. But in the book, like, obviously there's many of them. Exactly, yeah. Uh, They are kind of all about... He also has to retire six replicants in the book. Oh, yeah. And that's discluding Rachel, I believe, because she's not involved in... Uh, Who are the extra ones, do you know? Off the top of my head, Roy Batty wasn't really a character. There was... There was two characters who were with uh, Isidore, who is the book version of J.F. Sebastian, the creator of the autonomous parts of a robot, so the physical parts. Right. He is, in the book, he is not in any way a creator or any of these. He, he's just some scavenger who suffers from radiation damage and he's just a bit of an idiot, like purely due to genes or just like, he's seen as a lesser person. So there's kind of another subplot in the the book of lesser humans as well. So not even just lesser life forms, like like replicants, there's lesser humans Mm -hmm. as well. That's fascinating. But yeah, so he he is, in in the book, he's also coerced by these two replicants. And they start using mm-hmm. him as the tool to just like hide out, like in like in the film with uh, J. Like F. Sebastian. Like in the film, yeah, pretty much. Like because they were just using J. F. Sebastian when they prison him um, yeah, and Roy Bay. That's it, Roy Bay. So they were just using him as a hideout and like a tool to get to places, get to. Uh, through the film, I, I gotta say, I felt awful for J. F. Sebastian because I actually quite liked his character. <laughs> I didn't like his character because of it, how different it was from the book. It wasn't the same character mm-hmm. except for him being you. Do you think if you didn't read the book, you you would reflect differently? Yeah, that's what I think. Then. I'm not sure if that's just because I read the book first, but I don't like the toy kind of aspect of quirky. Vibe. It does make him a bit Michael Jackson-ish. Yeah, it was you know? very strange. Like, like a big The kid. whole, like, how he's got all these toys. It's like, but he lives in a shithole, but he's been working with one of the, like, richest Jeff Bowes' characters in this world. But he's, like, quite a nice guy in the film. Like, he takes prison, you know, he's just hanging out. Well, he's a nice guy in the book, but he's just a simpleton. Like, he, he he's just trying to help, but he's getting manipulated. Uh, I mean, even in my notes, I wrote, JF seems cool. <laughs> How little did I know? <laughs> well, in the um, 
in the book, they actually, the kind of turning point in the book is those replicants start, like, they find a rare spider. Like, spiders are very rare because animals don't really exist anymore, living animals. Yeah, because of the nuclear stuff. They just start tearing it apart and dissecting it and making it, like, while it's still alive, they, like, pluck its legs off one by one and that, like, the character of Isidore is getting upset. I guess that fits into the whole sadistic thing you were talking about, yeah. When I was watching the movie, I didn't even question why animals were harder to find in this world, but now you've dropped that. Exactly. I, I really wish I was in the phone. Because you don't think, oh, nuclear war before, because you're like, oh, I, I guess because of, I don't know, like expansion or something. Yeah. It is referenced in the sequel, but not. it's definitely not a big... Uh, it's not, like, looked into. It's really. not a big plot point, is what you're saying. Yeah. Which is fine, but it would have been weird to delve into that in a second. Yeah, you don't need to. So many similarities to Akira, this film. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's just a whole neo uh, future, you know, genre. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's just a whole... Did this film kick off the cyberpunk movement, or was it... Um, I would say this was a big contender for the cyberpunk push, as well as Akira. They're both kind of mm-hmm. early days. You said this film was 82, yeah. right? I think even, you know, Metropolis was a big push for Cyberpunk. Like. Oh, that's very true. And that was 1927, so uh, a long time ago. It was like a, an amalgamation of different things to really yeah. kick it off. Philip K. Dick was obviously a big pioneer for Cyberpunk as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to move on to parts I really didn't like in the film. Oh, wasn't expecting this, so, but yeah, go on. These are just bits that really annoy me when I'm rewatching. Should, should I play devil's advocate and argue with you about that? Yeah. <laughs> Leon's actor. You remember Leon, the guy we see at the beginning of the film? Leon's the guy with the mustache? Yeah. yeah. I really didn't like his actor. It, all his lines yeah. seemed disjointed and weird, which would make sense for a robot, but he's not meant to be a robot. He's meant he kind of just... takes away from the void comp test scene at the beginning he for really me. Does. Because, uh, yeah, I do agree with you. His acting is a little subpar. And I've watched Blade Runner twice in preparation for this and it's the second time that I noticed that the first time it didn't bother me so much but I knew something was off the second time I was like ah yeah it's his acting although sometimes he does pull it off like after uh, Deckard shoots the first replicant you just see his face in the background just looking you, shocked, even you know? a lot of faces are just like comically I don't know if this actor is just a bad actor or the direction was bad but everyone else did fine do you think um like they just killed him off because of things like that because uh, he gets quite an abrupt death scene he does yeah maybe that is why maybe there was intentions for that to be a bigger scene but yeah um mm. just mm. for reference rachel does save deckard as he's about to get crushed by that's the first time he's saved by a replicant when uh and uh rachel shoots him with his gun they're very easy to kill replicants when you have a gun isn't it you yeah. just shoot them once sort of thing like it's not like terminator where it's like no bullets won't do anything it's like no, you can just kill him with a bullet. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good fail safe. No, yeah, with Terminator, it's sort of like, oh, you'll never kill them. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit later on, the other replicants are dead, and it's just Roy Batty, the main antagonist, and Dakard. He's mm. like, he breaks his hand, so he can't use his gun, really, and he's trying to escape through his derelict building. And Roy Batty, mm-hmm. he is about to die, basically. He's found out he there's no way to push his lifespan further. He's slowly breaking down. You see his hand crumple up. As he can't use his you know fingers any I further. had no idea that's what was happening at that point. I thought he was absolutely fine. No, no. But yeah, he's hitting like the final moments of his life and he's slowly breaking down. I thought he was having like more of a mental breakdown. Well, it's probably, he probably was. It's just like... And then he was like, oh yeah, we can't fix you. So he's just he's just slowly breaking down. Into... He puts an, a nail into his own hand in a pretty gruesome I think scene. it does that purely to 
bring back use of his hand because he, he can't his hands like fingers like rigor mortis and kind of he punches through the wall at Deckard a few scenes earlier in a great shot he, so he punches through a wall and he breaks Deckard's fingers which is a very painful scene to watch exactly uh, and that 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 just cinematography there is great you know to zoom in on the gun and then the fist comes through a lot of people say that uh, they don't like the scenes where he's howling like a wolf as he's chasing Deckard. Oh, uh, no, I, I like, like it. I think it adds to the whole prime aspect. He's, like, breaking down mentally, just becoming... Uh, yeah, I just thought it added to the mental breakdown of the scene. Like, everyone, all the replicants he knows are dead, and he's alone, and he can't fix himself, and it's just, you know, a bad he knows time. knows his clock's ticking in that moment. Which makes the final scene even more better, where he saves Deckard. Exactly, yeah. So he does eventually save Deckard. It's all a game to him. So as they are doing that chase sequence, Deckard runs through a, a room in this large derelict building full of birds mm-hmm. that are resting and they, they'll flock away. I just realised, I wrote this in my notes, I was like, why are there doves? And I, t- I never got an answer. Yeah, so there's just birds and it's like, hold on. The film doesn't acknowledge, it does definitely nod to animals being scarce and not existing and you'd be rich if you found animals. Who is creating all these birds and putting them in a sterile <laughs> building? Maybe they're robot birds created by JF, why would you, I don't know. Mate, but... I mean, that's that's plausible, but no, <laughs> that's ridiculous. You see, I didn't know the whole animal angle before, but now I do, looking back. But I feel like it was definitely nodded to you, like when he brings the snake scale, he's, and when he references mm. the robot snake, they're like, whoa, what do you think I am, Rich, or things like that. It's with the owl as well, it's yeah. like... Uh... When they talk about that, it's like, oh, it's exactly, quite expensive. Yeah, like you know? the owl is referenced. When I first saw that scene, I was hoping Deco was going to be like, I want that owl, I want to buy it. Because the owl scene, I believe, is in the book as well, that exact scene. Well, it's, I guess it's just clear symbolism towards the end when, um, uh, I keep forgetting the antagonist's name, but uh, what was he called? Roy Bay. When he uh, throws the dove up into the sky, it's supposed to be symbolic of like a new day and all that. And, yeah, um, or a life leaving his body. Like. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's quite like religious it's one of those religious themes i suppose doves is quite a religious bird maybe they're tying it into that but like as like you say it is a bit random but again why has he got a dove <laughs> in a realism you know sort of aspect it doesn't make much sense in terms of the plot but i don't think it know. was needed there didn't need to be a room full of daily birds <laughs> i could um suspend my disbelief for those birds because uh obviously i didn't know the whole animal angle so I didn't mind it. It doesn't ruin the film. It's just something that nitpicks. It's, it's, a, really, it's really a nitpicky <laughs> thing in it, yeah. Are there any other nitpicks? Is it really? Except for obviously the whole animal angle that I mentioned. The next scene is him and Rachel leaving at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. They're both they're both careful. Obviously, this is like a forbidden love situation. He was supposed to kill Rachel. She escaped from Tyrell Corporation. And then you notice an origami unicorn is left outside his door but Deckard picks up and looks at it kind of in disbelief mm-hmm. because early in the film he has a sequence where he's drunk playing the piano poorly and he pictures he dreams of this unicorn running through a glade what do you think of a unicorn represents this is quite a hotly discussed scene um I did <laughs> when you watch the movie it is a bit of a strange thing that you do have to think about quite a lot yeah. because it's not explicitly told to you which is obviously why you're asking the question but um throughout the movie there are different uh, figures that i suppose are with different replicants so it might kind of be a nod to deckard maybe being a replicant because they sort of have like these almost like spirit animals with them yeah. in a strange way maybe something like that what do you so think i believe that was the intention that 
uh, he makes a references earlier telling Rachel about dreams she's had. The only way he'd know mm-hmm. that information mm-hmm. is if she was a replicant and he knows what memories or dreams were implemented into her head. So when mm-hmm. he finds that unicorn origami thing, he's likely thinking the reason he reacts like that is because he's questioning whether he is a replicant or he's questioning how his the other guy, uh, the other blade runner knew the significance of a unicorn in his life. Oh, was that guy a Blade Runner? I didn't yeah, even click that. Yeah, the guy that. who arrested him yeah. initially brought him in. The, the one who who's like, uh, uh, sh- it's a shame she has to die, but then again we all do, or something like that. His name is Gaff, uh, and he specifically says, it's too bad she won't live, then again, who does? And that echoes throughout that scene. Fascinating. Well, what do people online say if it's a hotly contented sort of topic? Um, so... I don't know. It's a lot. A lot of people say it is representing him being a replicant or not. Um, I'm not sure what else Ridley Scott might have meant by putting that yeah. in. Like, because I can't see anything else that might. I have personally, meant. I, I don't oh. really like looking into fan theory. I like looking at my own kind of like interpretation oh, of first. Course, of course, but I can't interpret interpret that to be anything else than that. Because I'm not sure what else it could mean. You know, <laughs> unless there was a subplot that you really liked animals. That's the well, only. It's not even thing a real animal. Yeah, like. <laughs> it's not even a real animal. Exactly like, and um, the fact that the other Blade Runner like places them around. Yeah. It's like it's kind of hinted at that that might be what that is. Was that in the original cut? Because that must have really confused audience. So that's the thing. We'll move on to now with differences in the original cut between the final cut. So in the original cut, mm-hmm. the unicorn scene was filmed, but it, it didn't feature. I believe it did just flicker, but it didn't, you know, it, there was no significant focus on that scene at all. Um, right. Because I believe they, the studio believed it was too arty. Bloody Warner Brothers. <laughs> it is pretty arty. Yeah. So some of the cuts, uh, a lot of the violence was cut, like I mentioned. The whole film was narrated poorly by Harrison Ford, <laughs> which he phoned in, like I mentioned, just because he mm-hmm. felt like it shouldn't have been in the cut whatsoever. Did he say it was phoned in? Or he d- he said that he phoned it, it in. He didn't want to do it. Like, okay. <laughs> very poor okay. narration. Which <laughs> it's very jarring to hear. But I'm wondering, I wasn't sure if maybe the, the, the narration added to it because I read the book first. I don't know if I maybe had some insight already. But maybe it, it's sort of like a, cl- a, a common trope to like have a, like a book you're adapting into a movie to put narration yeah. into it. But it's usually better when you don't. Is there that. anything you were confused about that? Maybe I could. In Blade Runner, well, I'm glad you you were talking about the unicorn thing because that's the most confusing yeah. thing. You know? And I feel like even that um, is ambiguous. It's not really explored, and it's not in the book. Yeah, can we talk about um the final speech by um what's his face, the guy's Roy guy Barry. Ritchie. What's his name? Yeah, so let's let's play it now. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. Rain. Time to die. 
Yes, so that is a very famous line from a film. What did you interpret that speech as? I would interpret it as him showing that he's seen things. He's seen all these amazing things. I think the words he's saying are deliberately so alien to us because we as humans probably couldn't even have been in the situations he's been in as a replicant. Like, they mm-hmm. show an earlier scene where one of them withstands boiling water. So he could probably go to environments, which is why he was a slave in the outer yeah, colonies. That we would never believe as humans. We would never be able to walk in the atmosphere. Uh, 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 and one of the replicants puts their hand in um, ice at the start, doesn't he? Like pure exactly, ice. Exactly, yeah, pure ice. Uh, they, yeah. they can withstand like, a lot of things. He's kind of saying that he's seen things like these. He's been created by humans, but he's seen things even they could not fathom. It's a bit like... Um, the the speech at the end of the book version of a I am a legend where he's like I am like the last of my kind and all yeah. that jazz and like I am an actual legend the last human like uh the because he's sort of in a way like one of the last replicants if you believe like the Blade Runners are gonna yeah. execute them all like and he's he will have seen things and he will have stories and tales that, that will never you know be told be seen again never be seen again and it's kind of like a a sigh because he's about to die and all his memories are gone like tears in the rain and then he just decides that um it is time to die and he just gives himself i don't don't think he decided i think he just came to terms of it after saving deckard and then he just sits in like lets his body shut down where it was probably trying to do why do you think he did save deckard was it because he was empathizing with him or um i think he was just playing the game i think he wanted to show him that like yeah, he could have easily killed it. Maybe, I think he's doing it as his final act to become human. Like, he's mm, showing... Like saving someone else. Yeah, he's showing empathy, and in that moment, he maybe becomes... It's great when just Deckard and him, are, they're not saying anything, but they're just staring at each other, and Harrison Ford face, Ford's face there is just... Yeah, he's just, he's just useless. He's just an old fucking useless he's blade runner. He's there, not good like... at his job. He's just lying there like... <laughs> I need to take a holiday. <laughs> Uh, yeah no thanks for interpreting uh helping me understand that because it was a confusing one well i think as well him doing that human act lets deckard do the same for rachel by saving her and not not turning her and not killing her when he was supposed to and you know he Mm -hmm. too i guess becomes human whoa deep yeah deep take so (laughs) i want you to watch now the the worst part of the original cut Oh. It's the original ending to the film, which I hadn't seen until doing this. We we were you know doing some research for this podcast. It is awful, and it destroys like half the film's setting in law. Uh, okay, okay, I'm gonna watch it. Nice green, lush landscapes. It looks like the Lake District. <laughs> like Scottish mud. I'm surprised the. The world's actually doing all right, I guess. Why didn't they just leave us (laughs) in? Yeah, why are there no animals? (laughs) Gaff had been there and let her live. Four years, he figured. He was wrong. Tyrell had told me Rachel was special. No termination date. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? The narration is so funny. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, is that it's it It's awful, isn't it? It's really bad. What do those over-panning shots remind you of? Like Highlander, maybe? Oh, you're going to kick yourself. So, uh, just for reference for listeners, there's a scene uh, where they've escaped the city and they're flying in their spinner over this nice, lush, green terrain, which completely contradicts anything in the movie. Opening of The Shining? Why would anyone live in <laughs> LA when there's a little nice, lush, green area to live in, where nuclear war is not tainted it for some reason? Yeah, it looks great. Where are the animals? <laughs> exactly. I'm uh, and then Deckard obviously exclaims what he just did, which is basically reiterating what I went and married her <laughs> we married and had took kids her under my ring. and uh, my kid got cocky four years is a long time at least to me but hey she was special <laughs> oh okay she was the special one that's so who stupid. knew she didn't have it in her so uh, so it's such a narration is ridiculous I mean it's it just it really does ruin a huge part it of really it does. it's it? like, like are you fucking serious I mean I'm assuming Blade Runner 2049 does not follow this uh, lush landscape, not, no. you know. But yeah, so another thing throughout this whole scene, it's a lot of helicopter shots of this nice green terrain. I was like, is this going to lead into the fucking The Shining or something? The beginning of The Shining? <laughs> yeah, it does look a bit like that. And then it? as I literally thought that and made notes about that, I was reading the comments. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick gave Ridley Scott 17 hours of helicopter tracking shots used for The Shining for this scene. <laughs> It's it literally like the it, same it? footage yeah. from The Shining. <laughs> what if it led into The Shining? That's that, but isn't, that, isn't that so bizarre? Like, I, This is why I have a film degree, Ben. <laughs> I can call out Stanley Kubrick's helicopter shots a mile. <laughs> it's what you paid 42000 exactly. for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is going to get it all paid off. No, it's that's uh, really interesting. I think it, yeah, the... Um, Final cut ending is better. I like how it ends in the lift instead. And I like the ambiguity. I of love it, that cut the elevator door just slamming shut quickly. Like. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And the music builds up. I hate the um cheesy saxophone music here. Yeah, so that is that kind of covers everything, if I'm honest. You know what? We didn't talk about um Tyrell's death scene. It's oh, actually yeah. gruesome. I have to look away when I'm watching it. Yeah, so just for reference, Tyrell, the guy who's created all these androids, Roy Batty, the main antagonist, meets him for the first time. And mm. he's basically being told by Tyrell that there is no way that they can push his lifespan beyond four years. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So this man with all the knowledge that could possibly save him, Roy just grabs his head and just pushes his eye sockets in. Mm-hmm. And, it's yeah. really gruesome. It's horrible to watch. Really uh, he's just cr- killed his maker. Crushed his eyes and blood comes out. Oh, It's great visual effects, but bloody hell. It's it's a nightmare. I've got to give a good big shout out to the uh, director of photography here, George. Uh, <laughs> might get this wrong, Cromenweth. He is um, amazing. I think all the shots in this film, they look beautiful. You know, just grand sweeping shots. Like we said, the pyramid shot at the start. You know, even inside the pyramid, the market to talk claustrophobic, the chase scene, the close-ups on the guns you know it's all just beautiful do you have any particular favorite shots from the film you want to shout out it's got to be that classic shot of the, the geisha kind of advertising on the giant screen as they fly that's past the, the classic spinner. shot isn't it yeah that is the the best shot and also the final shot of roy batty laying there as the rain hits him and, amazing yeah. Like I say, I love that uh, extreme close-up of the gun earlier on and he punches through the wall and takes oh, off and yeah. just great. 
such a great shot. One thing I found as well, I was playing Fallout 4, um, mm-hmm. and I was just walking along its uh, the cityscape. You know, Fallout 4 has a lot of inspiration from this film, given that the plot mm-hmm. is replicants, uh, essentially replicants. Oh, um, I don't know the plot of Fallout 4. Oh, whoops. <laughs> but, <laughs> Guess I just figured it out anyway. Spoiler. I mean, it's not it's not a hidden plot, really. It's a, it's a, But uh, there's a lot of replicants in Fallout 4, uh, heavily inspired by this film. Uh, old cool. book um and i found i just happened to find like an easter egg on top of a building of them and they, two people in this exact pose <laughs> really very cool like a synth uh, just like kneeling i down. mean t- the, i guess the last thing we could talk about is just the influence this film has had on popular culture and media it's it's wide and vast and just you you name a film like in the future influenced by blade runner you know? toy story 2 With that clock and bell uh, storyline, like yeah, you could draw really parallels. <laughs> it, and you know when Woody's like, "You are a toy," you know, is Buzz the real replicant of the story? You know, <laughs> and he has that dream sequence about the unicorn. Like that just discussion <laughs> of what makes a toy. You know, it's yeah. fascinating in oh, terms so of thinking deaf. about Blade Runner. When he pulls that string and he says, "Reach for the sky." <laughs> You've got to start considering what is yeah. the sky what is in the, the sky Toy Story in context and what it, what is he reaching for. <laughs> There's a snake in whose boot, you know, like, who were they talking about? What was Stinky Pete? <laughs> I can't even finish this. <laughs> you get the point. You, you get it. Anyway, uh, what are your final thoughts on the film? Or what, do you want to summarise your... Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's as amazing as everyone says. Some films are built up, uh, and you watch them, and you don't think they're as good. But I promise, uh, at least, it's just if you like a science fiction story, it's it's the definitive, isn't it? It's the classic. It's the peak. The world's amazing. The cinematography is amazing. I didn't even mention the coloring and visual effects. It's got like a great blue hue throughout the movie. Amazing. It's just fantastic. I love the. the lighting as well where the white oh. light just kind of like flickers it's like a cool effect it's, of like cars going past the window or you know passing zeppelins that kind of pass through the zeppelins like i wrote about them they, they are just brilliant and it's the world building that really makes this film and i i haven't seen the sequel i hear it's just as good the so sequel i, I think really want... it, it the sequel is ridiculously good uh given yeah. the, you know the pressure it must have undergone yeah it's amazing a film made that much later is just as good you know definitely worth a watch i think we will definitely be coming back to that film for a later episode which oh I'm, you're saying not not to watch it now you're then. not legally not obliged <laughs> not to watch that film <laughs> i don't remember signing that in the contract and i know okay. it's probably killing you because it is such a good film and no i almost as soon as i watched the first one watched the second one almost immediately well, glad you didn't how many but, weeks are you going to keep me in anticipation, Dave? So what you can do is, in the when Blade Runner 2049 came out, the creator, Villeneuve, I forgot his first name, he commissioned three films be made, showing the timelines between the first film and the second, one of which is an anime. Oh, I saw that this morning. Yeah, I was like, what is that? Yeah, they're all named after years after. Is that like a bit like the Animatrix then? Exactly. It's it's pretty. I would say it's exactly like the Animatrix and what they did. Mm. One of them is an animation, one of them is live action with Dave Bautista. Ooh. 
One of them's called 2019 or something like that. That's the oh, one no, I the other one has Jared Leto in Wow, my uh, saving grace of the world, your favourite Joker in a Blade Runner movie. Yeah, so Jared Leto is okay in, uh, in the film. I don't like in Jared Suicide Leto. Squad. But yeah, we're, we're not going to talk too much about that just because, yeah. <laughs> but you can watch his uh, short um, films if you'd like. Oh, thank you for your permission, oh great <laughs> Dave, our Lord. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, that's really upsetting. I can't watch a sequel now. Oh. <laughs> Knowing that there is a sequel... What do you think could be the plot of that film related to this Ooh, one? Ooh, really heck. Well, uh, I have seen the trailer, so I've seen that. It, is it in Los Angeles again? Like, it's certainly got the same sort of vibe, What no matter what city it is. Well, it must be in Los Angeles, because I know that Harrison Ford's in the sequel, and he, he can't be that far away. In yeah. the trailer, I've seen him in a desert, which I'm assuming is the outskirts. I don't know if Ra- I don't think Rachel will be in it I bet she'll be dead by then and he'll be living by himself and Ryan Gosling's the main character isn't he so I yeah. bet he's a Blade Runner who's maybe like sent on a mission to find this old Blade Runner who's maybe I don't know went rogue or something like that I mean how spot on am, am I like even vaguely close I'm, I'm not giving it gonna give you any you're not even gonna say no joking? I'm not giving you any inclination <laughs> I'm annoyed you watched the trailer frankly and I was in the cinema <laughs> what do you want me to do today? okay that's fair enough <laughs> wasn't it what I what I heard about that trailer was um that um is it Warner Brothers who made it again I can't remember uh, I remember the production company like it's rumored that like Harrison Ford is supposed to be like a surprise reveal in the movie, like they let the cat out the bag. Like, is this true? Uh, they did. The trailer doesn't tell all the truth, so so I think you think I th- I'm safe for I a watch. I think you're safe. Yeah, it didn't ruin anything. In my opinion, he's on the poster, so it doesn't really. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, they yeah. really did let the cat out the bag. He's ruddy everywhere, you know. Yeah, but I feel like. <laughs> If anyone, like, I feel like if he wasn't on the poster and it was called Blade Runner, people would still be, fi- you'd find it out easily. Yeah, it wouldn't be a hard thing to figure people out. People would have gone on IMDb and been like, oh, he's a Blade Runner. Without revealing anything about the plot of the movie, do you think it, like, takes it in, like, um, you know, puts in twists I wouldn't expect? Or, oh, absolutely. You know... It's a fucking, it's a head. It, yeah. <laughs> it's a I wouldn't wreck. expect the plot even vaguely sort of thing. No, you won't be able to guess the plot. What's I was just interested because I wouldn't mm. have guessed what a sequel to Blade Runner would have been. Uh, it's, it's certainly going to be something about getting Harrison Ford for some reason. Maybe there's like a big, gigantic 50-foot bl- uh, replicant <laughs> tearing up the city or something. I thought you hadn't seen it. Oh, oh shit. It's, it's a stay-puffed guy as well. <laughs> so one, other, one final thing as well that I will say is that from the trailer you've seen that um, there is a desert kind of environment that Harrison Ford is in. Um, that must be the outskirt of the city, yeah. surely. So, in the actual ending of a book, he leaves his wife and goes into the desert in his uh, spinner. And it's, it, it, you're not supposed to go to the desert. There's nothing there, you know what I mean? And he, yeah. he's walking around and just, like, lost distance. Like, he's just running away, kind of like he doesn't know what to do. And then yeah. the, see, the final, final bit of a book, he sees a toad... And he's not sure if it's real or not, and that's it. <laughs> I thought it wouldn't be better if it was like a tortoise, like the reflecting the it star. It would have, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what was I about to say? Yeah, does the sequel have anything to do with the original story? Yeah. 
Uh-huh. And that's all I'll say. Not going to tell me, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking bastard. All right, then. Anyway, uh, I think we'll close out there. And, um, yeah, lovely yeah, talk. We'll leave you with the end credits. And after that, we'll be the new zone. Stay tuned. segment which is uh hard news where the stories are hard and the uh actions much harder and uh i have a few little stories here you ready dave here we go yeah so go story number one you're a big fan of martin scorsese dave uh big scorsese he okay <laughs> he, he does okay yeah come he on okay. he did the superb netflix film i still haven't seen the irish because it's like three five hours long or something <laughs> the only thing i'm excited about about that uh, would be that guy I can't remember the name of from the this... old Al Pacino. No, <laughs> the guy from This Is England, Stephen. Oh, is he in it? I don't know. What's his that. name? He's in it. Uh, yeah. What's his name? Oh, I like him. Yeah, I have no idea. Not Sean Meadows or something like that, is it? No, that's the director that's... of This Is England. What? Stephen Graham. There we go. Stephen uh, yeah. Graham. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm taking it. You haven't seen The Irishman. <laughs> I've not. No. Neither have I. That's fantastic. Well, now that we've not seen The Irishman, get ready for Scorsese's next flick, Killers of the Flower Moon. He is coming up with his uh, sequel, or not sequel, sorry, a follow-up to The Irishman, Killers of the Flower Moon. He's having quite a time of it, apparently. Oh. Paramount is uh, fa- funding it, sorry. Uh, and a deal has been reached. Uh, Apple are now actually taking over it, apparently. So Apple has bought it from Paramount. Bit strange. So basically, Paramount is still releasing the film into cinemas, but it's also premiering on the small screen on Apple TV, and which is the biggest acquisition the Apple company has made. So they're they're trying to roll in with the big boys, you know, the Netflix, the Amazons. Yeah. So uh, this new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, guess who the main actors are? Don't actually guess, guess. I guess. Joe Pesci. <laughs> Joe Pesci. <laughs> Wasn't he in... He was in The Irishman. What's that guy who's in every Martin Scorsese film? Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. Robert De Niro. Le- yep, you got it well. Your first two guesses, you got both the main actors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the main characters are Robert De Niro. And, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Leo, good old Leo. It's set in 1920s Oklahoma. Revolves around uh, this nation, which is the richest uh, in the world after oil's discovered. Yada, yada. It's Americana. What do you think? He ex- revolves around Leonardo DiCaprio raising his eyebrows and <laughs> and Robert De Niro raising one eyebrow <laughs> yeah. with a weird grin. It's uh, it's called Killers of the Killer Eyebrows, Flowers oh. of the Killer Eyebrow. So uh, get ready for that. It's already begun shooting. And Scorsese's also making a short film to air on BBC Two. 
uh, because of the lockdown. I, yeah. Well, there you go. What What do you think? You excited, Scorsese? Uh, that's my. That's what I say. Uh, that's also my opinion as well. <laughs> How did you know? Like, you keep on doing stuff, Mister Scorsese. Uh, you know what, Scorsese? Just keep on doing what you you're doing. Keep doing you. <laughs> it's weird to talk about old directors because um, you think of people like Francis Ford Coppola, who like haven't produced a good movie in yonks and like stuff like that but martin scorsese's movies are still relatively quite good you know yeah. he's still all joking well, aside i hope when i become a famous director uh, inevitably um, inevitably that i will be doing the same thing he's doing uh, is he a bit of an influence actors. would you say scorsese to your filmmaking style then uh no not even <laughs> not, <regular. slaves>. no. <laughs> not, not taxi driver now <laughs> i've never seen taxi driver then yeah really <laughs> wow this i need to Maybe it'll be on the podcast one day. Here we go. Yeah. I have a degree in film. <laughs> Such a great film. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm, well, uh, Just I, one of that's those. kind of stunned me to silence, to be honest. Like, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> well, anyway. Well, so, um, you hadn't seen Blade Runner until today. So. That's true. I hadn't seen Blade There's lots of films... Me and Dave, just to clarify, have not seen because we can't watch every movie in the world. The biggest thing, the biggest annoying thing about like studying film is the amount of people yeah. that tell you how can you be a film student when you've not seen the Santa Claus two. <laughs> Ernest Saves Christmas, which I have uh, seen by the way. The Santa Claus two. I have not seen a single the Santa Claus movie. I'm sorry to say. All right, now I'm going to move on to a story. I know you're going to have an interesting take on. Uh, can you guess what it might be? I know they said Rob Schneider. <laughs> it is that- Zach Snyder. Zack Snyder's yeah. Justice League uh, edit. Re, re-edit, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's like, basically, um, do you think you could sum it up for our listeners who are not in the know here? Yeah, so basically, the Zack Snyder um, DC Universe trilogy was going to be, you know, start with Batman vs Superman, which sucked, but the director's cut was tolerable. I enjoyed that. It was good. I've also seen personally. It's Okay. The second movie in this was going to be Justice League, which we got. I do believe one of his family members died during the production, which kind of pushed it into this kind of Weird twilight zone. Limbo. Of, yeah, it was production hell. Mm. Uh, who took it over again? Uh, that guy, the Marvel guy that no one likes, jo- Joss yeah. Whedon. Is that well, it? Joss Whedon took it over and turned it into barely a film. It was uh, awful. It was embarrassing. It was the Avengers three of uh, movies. The only good thing about it was the soundtrack by Danny Elfman, which incorporated all of the individual like themes, like Wonder Woman, Batman. Superman. I didn't even know Danny Elfman did the music. Did it have the yeah. original Batman theme, the nineteen eighties? It did. One? It was the animated series theme. Oh, that would be sick. And then it turned into like it, it was incorporated into like the sound. It was so good. Yeah, I haven't seen Justice League by the way, so I I don't know much about it. I, I know. It, it's awful. It's not good. I'd watch it if you wanted a. It's very cringy. Yeah, I mean, Dave's seen it. That's good enough for me, you know. Superman <laughs> like, but, uh... makes suicidal jokes. Yeah. Uh, there's a cringy moment where Aquaman is sitting on Wonder Woman's lasso of truth and uh, very awkwardly tells embarrassed truths. And Bruce Wayne's like, oh, 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 oh <laughs> like, can't try to tell him awkwardly. It's like, this yeah. is none of his characters. Oh, oh, like, just over there. He's like, oh, 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 you're sitting on the lasso of truth. Uh oh, wacky. 
It's so cringy. Uh, but, uh, what's the Snyder Cut all about anyway? What's the deal? So basically, it, it just, nothing really happened. Superman was meant to be a big threat because he'd come back and he doesn't remember who he is. Uh, so he's just killing people. Hmm. It is a very poorly done. But in the Batman Superman, there's a uh, Flashpoint reference where he has like a future vision of what the world could turn into and it, it we get a really cool dystopian vision mm. of a future batman in like armor uh, shooting people which is absolutely badass absolutely badass. superman lands and like basically uh, presumably kills batman oh is that the whole desert thing in that movie yeah it's so oh, cool. i didn't even think of that that might be a flashpoint reference yeah. but so that go. that flash forward was gonna be what the third movie was gonna be Mm, in the Zack mm. Schneider universe. Mm. It was Darkseid taking over Earth and they fail basically in, in the Justice League movie and that is the dark feature. But that never happened, so yeah, it's really dumb. But Zack Schneider has got the rights again, he's got the go-ahead, he's got funding, millions of dollars funding. Uh, he's got Henry Cavill on board, among other people. So what we're looking at is just a very extensive re-edit is basically it, I suppose. Is that what you'd say it was? Well, they're re-editing it, I believe, into six chapters. So I'm it's six HBO miniseries on their new website. They're joining the uh, streaming game as well, HBO. So that'll be a big draw for um, whoever wants to sign up for that because people have been clamouring for this cut for years, haven't they? Well, I just I didn't think it was going to come. I thought it was just that. It's just a, a myth, but, yeah. You know, uh, apparently as well, Green Lantern is going to be added as an additional character. And... There was someone else I can't recall off the top of my head, but yeah. But uh, would you be surprised to hear, Dave, that that's not the news story I'm going to talk about? Yes. What I'm actually going to talk about... Is how it <laughs> failed, and that's not happening anymore. something a lot funnier, which is David Ayer, the director of Suicide Squad, calling for the release of his Suicide Squad cut. <laughs> Did you know that? I have heard that there is a really good cut of that film. I've I not just seen can't believe it. I've seen that film. It's one of the worst I've ever seen. And just I've heard it... there is a good cut though somewhere. No. I've read about that definitely. No, because they got that trailer company in to do the editing. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. So he's clamoring on Twitter to try and get a, a re-edit of his suicide quote. But he, the thing is, he was the director, so I don't understand. Like, surely you could have re-edited it if you really wanted to. Like, uh, Ben I mean, Ridley Scott was the creator of Blade Runner and that took three tries. So this whole episode's about recuts, <laughs> apparently. Dave, Let's get, get the cuts out. Get Dave, the cuts out. speaking of cutting, you just cut me with that anecdote pretty damn. <laughs> I'm bleeding right now. But, uh, I'd be, I would gladly watch a Suicide Squad. Would recut. you watch a Suicide Squad recut? Yeah. I would. I could maybe. I've not seen the original, but I've heard it was. I've seen the original, so. and trust me, it's bad. And I couldn't. It's not. A, it's not an editing problem. It's a uh, story characters just tone of the film problem and I don't think they're going to fix that in a few edits you know what I mean and but don't you be- feel Superman vs Batman had that issue as well and yeah and I don't really think the re-edit's going to be that much better to be honest but I'll, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and see if uh, Snyder can do a lot better with it but well, I'm, we'll no, see. I'm referencing Batman vs Superman the one that already did have a recut that you said you liked yeah I thought it was just okay like I said I thought the old one was all right, and I think this the recut was okay. It just added a few scenes that explained a few more things, a bit more exposition, made it flow a bit better. And yeah, of course, you can um, upgrade a movie slightly through a recut, but to 
and I can see it working with Justice League because it's not, it wasn't Zack Snyder's vision. Do you know what I mean? But when David Ayer made this movie, that was his vision. You know, he had the chance, and he's calling for these cuts, and I just don't think it's very fair. You know, like, and okay. let's be honest, he's never gonna get them. Like, cause the Zack Snyder recuts, what were they? They're like thirty million or something ridiculous. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So I don't I'd think... know there's a lot of fanboys of that Holly Quinn and <sighs> that Birds of Prey movie that neither of us saw. It's just Harley Quinn. It's just all Harley Quinn, isn't it? It's nothing else. You don't watch that movie for Killer Croc, do you? You know what I mean? Will Smith I mean, is Deadshot. I would have watched it. If he was Deadshot, I hate Deadshot as a character. What are but... we? Some kind of Suicide Squad? Yeah, I mean, pull the whole plug. Pull it all. Pull the plug. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> all right, next story. <laughs> so, right. Edgar Wright, uh, to, uh, to be more precise, is we were talking about him earlier, and he's. Uh, have you heard anything about his new movie, Dave? I have not. So he's uh, releasing a new movie, and it was planned for this year, but obviously, well, there must be something going on on Earth as well as our alien quarantine. I'm not sure what it is, but it's it's meant it's been pushed back somewhat. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm none the wiser. We don't have much communication well, here. Well, like years away, so uh, we we are at least. 20 light years away you know what i mean so no idea but anyway he's just announced a release date for his new movie which is called last night in soho uh looks really interesting and i'm just reading a bit about it it's it's scheduled for release 23rd of april 2021 so bit of bad news uh, and we've got um some of our actors in the film been revealed through a screenshot guess who the actor is the main actor i just want you to guess it's here simon Pegg. because you will never get it in a million years Oh, is it generally one I won't get? It it's. I'll just give you a clue, okay? It's one of the one of the doctors. Oh, it's it's obviously not Matt Baker. Who's? Yeah, not my, yeah, no, no, it, no, none of the dead ones. Tom Baker, even I meant. Yeah, Matt I, Smith, I was getting so confused. Though, yes. Oh, Chris Reckleston. Not Chris Reckleston. That would be a really good guess because he's the most actor-like here. Okay, I mean, not you him. say I'm never going to guess it, but you just told me it's Doctor Who, so I've gone for all the non-obvious choices. So now who, who have you said so far? You said Tom said Baker, Christopher Eccleston, Tom Baker, mm-hmm. and I feel like they're the non-obvious ones. So I'm going to just go with the Scottish guy. I forgot the name of David Tennant. No, the sorry, I forgot his two. <laughs> the <other laughs> Scottish guy. We're getting your uh, lack of Doctor Who knowledge live on the podcast. What's his name? <laughs> oh fuck! Well, the oldest Doctor Delete Peter Capaldi. Yeah. I'm just going to let the cat out the bag and say you're wrong on all of them and say that uh, it's so Matt Smith. So it was Sm- the most obvious one. So you, it, it's you... Matt Smith. Okay, so you, so you basically red-herring me and it, it, thanks, Ben. I'm sorry, Dave. Can you forgive me? Please. Doctor Who's our next recommendation, by the way. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the entire season. But uh, yeah, Matt Smith is uh, our lead co- co-starring with Anna Taylor, Anya Taylor-Joy. Have you ever heard of her? Nope. Neither have I. Uh, so <laughs> apparently Edgar Wright tells us it's a psychological horror film which will be an interesting Ooh. stance because he's never gone into that before So, yeah. and it's set in 1960s London any thoughts on mm. the sofa? yeah I'd watch it I mean I'm absolutely buzzing did you see Baby Driver at the cinema? that was the last Edgar Wright film I, I saw I did yeah. and I enjoyed it yeah I mean has he done a bad movie? I mean Baby Driver had a lot of flaws <laughs> ah, I'm not saying it's the perfect movie Baby Driver's you know? the least Ooh. polished I have not seen his original. I'm going to respectively, respectively uh, disagree with you there. But uh, what would you say is his least polished? Shaun of the Dead, but because uh, just because it's his first movie. 
When I say leaf polished, I mean in terms of like every aspect, not just editing or production wise. I think the editing in Baby Driver is the best he's ever done. But I think the story was lackluster. I'm not saying that the narrative was amazing, but I think filmmaking wise, Baby Driver is amazing. Filmmaking wise, it's amazing, yeah, with all the patterns yeah. of the. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we're just nitpicking here because it's hard to put any flaws in any Edgar Wright movie because they're all so good. So. Except for Baby Driver because the writing wasn't that good. Of course, I'm going to say that. <laughs> and anyway, that wraps up the news for the week. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about, I'll yeah, be... Uh, I mean, well, we've got to, got to talk about what, what you're recommending. It will be uh, the recommendation for the next episode. And Dave, I know it's a movie you've not seen. Okay. It's Taxi Driver. Oh, is it actually Taxi Driver? <laughs> I had a completely different recommendation until you said that earlier, and now we're oh. going to watch Taxi Driver. <laughs> Because you need to see it. (laughs) Okay, taxi driver it is. All right, so uh, anything else to say, Dave, before we wrap up? You can't tell, but I'm raising my eyebrow like Rob De Niro. And And I'm raising... Looking around the room. I'm raising three of my uh, eyebrows like Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, I, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't have have anything to follow that that up with, really. (laughs) Well, I think think that takes us up for a week. Great, thanks. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks for tuning in. I'll start it by saying something like, are you talking to to me? You're talking to me? There isn't anyone else in the room? (laughs) Who else could you you be talking to? You must be talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anyone else here? I can't see anyone else. Music done by Ben Loveland. Edited by David Harrison. Narration done by James Walker. This has been the Super 8-Bit Podcast. See you next time.